bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. I do hope that you and your family are safe and well. Now, in this week's Tax Credit Tuesday, I'm going to start once again with COVID-19 updates as I'll likely continue to be doing over the next few weeks. Now, in prior podcasts, I've discussed three different phases of legislation, with the third phase, the CARES Act, being so significant that we had a webinar last week on the topic. That webinar, by the way, is available on our website for free. You can view it for free, in case you missed it. We also have a webinar this Thursday on the SBA-administered Paycheck Protection Program. This is a forgivable loan program that was part of the CARES Act as well. And once again, that webinar is this Thursday, and it is free as well. If you are interested in watching, you can register online. While you continue to learn more about the prior three phases of legislation addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, it's important that you also be aware as to what might be forthcoming in a fourth or even fifth phase of federal legislation. That's why I'm going to start the podcast with a glance into the future as to the timing and focus of such legislation. I'll also discuss some concerns about the economic fallout of COVID-19, the concern that it's having on low-income housing tax credit property developers, owners, investors, and lenders. And after covering those targeted COVID-19 issues, I'm going to move on onto two other topics. In the affordable housing area, I'm going to discuss HUD's fiscal year 2020 income limits. They were released last week. And in the community development area, last week, Treasury released corrections to the Opportunity Zone's final regulations. As such, I'll close with a brief summary of what was included. If you're ready, let's get started. Last week, I outlined the two-plus trillion dollar COVID-19 relief package called the CARES Act. CARES, by the way, is an acronym that stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. And as noted earlier, the bill was the third COVID-19 relief package enacted. And I hosted a discussion of the bill in a Novogratz webinar last week. And as I also noted, you can access the recording on our on-demand training page. The webinar is free, and I'll include a link in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Now, I want to talk about the next steps, or the possible next steps, for a fourth phase of legislation and what provisions could be included in this fourth phase of COVID-19 relief. Now, let's start by talking about timing. The House and Senate are currently out of session until at least April 20th. And I say at least because the COVID-19 public health emergency will greatly affect when and how Congress will return to Washington, D.C. If we're still at the peak of the public health crisis on April 20th, I would expect or I wouldn't expect Congress to return, even if there were a phase four deal among Republicans and Democrats and among the House, Senate, and the President. Now, with respect to a possible deal, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters last week that House Democrats have already started working on drafting Phase 4. Pelosi said the bill could see a floor vote within weeks. Obviously, House members would need to come back for the floor vote. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans said they want to take a wait-and-see approach. They want to wait and see the impact of the three already enacted COVID-19 bills before taking up a new bill. Now, while the first two COVID-19 bills addressed the emergency of the pandemic— and the third bill was about mitigation, Pelosi earlier last week said the fourth bill, well, that bill should be about recovery. Now, the House Speaker initially said infrastructure spending 
would likely be part of her phase four plan. And President Trump, he tweeted support for an infrastructure package. However, Speaker Pelosi appeared to shift her approach later last week after House and Senate Republicans criticized a broad brush phase four bill. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told the Washington Post that it would take a lot of convincing to persuade him to do a transportation bill slash infrastructure after Congress had just passed a $2 trillion phase three bill. Congressional Republicans, they argue that COVID-19 legislation should focus on providing immediate pandemic relief and not on what Republicans are characterizing as broader liberal priorities. In response to all of this, Pelosi last Friday shifted her focus and called for a more targeted phase four bill. In fact, Pelosi told CNBC that she's still in favor of clean water, broadband, and other infrastructure investments, but those measures, those investments, may have to wait for later legislation. Now that said, there is still a chance for housing and community development provisions to be included in a phase four bill or in future phases, especially in legislation that focuses on economic recovery. Here's an example. The New Markets Tax Credit, it has a proven track record as a job creator and a supporter of local businesses. Proponents of the New Markets Tax Credit, including the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition and the Partnership for Job Creation, they've urged Congress to double the allocation authority for the pending 2019 round. The round is authorized currently at $3.5 billion, so doubling that would bring the total to $7 billion in tax credit allocation authority that would be available this summer. Now, as you may recall, the 2015 and 2016 rounds were combined to provide $7 billion in allocation authority, which was quickly absorbed. I do expect there would be ample demand for the credit again, even with an increased amount. Now, on the housing front, House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters had last month proposed a series of measures, such as suspending all rent and utility payments for assisted housing renters, and providing $10 billion for community development block grants, which could be used to build and preserve affordable housing. Now, many of Waters' proposals were not enacted as part of Phase 3, so we might see a push for them to get included in Phase 4 or future phases. Now, there's also a push for direct federal funding of many residential rental housing developments that are facing depressed rent collections. Now, rent collections at residential rental housing are down due to unemployment caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, along with the four-month federal moratorium on evictions for many properties. I'll discuss more on these challenges that are facing property owners, managers, lenders, and investors in a moment during the podcast. But let's talk about what else could be included in Phase 4 legislation. Speaker Pelosi said the next tranche of funds should provide more money to aid states, cities, and small businesses, which could include additional funding for the Paycheck Protection Program, she mentioned small businesses and the current funding level of $349 billion for the SBA-administered Paycheck Protection Program, that limit could be reached. Now, on the Senate side, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he said that Democrats are going to push for more stabilization funding for states and local governments. You may know that the Democrats had requested $750 billion for state and local governments in the Phase 3 legislation, but were only able to get $150 billion. Now, I do want to turn and speak a little bit about the challenges that COVID-19 is bringing to the affordable rental housing community, including low-income housing tax credit financed housing. Todd Crow of PNC and I wrote a blog post last week on implications of the pandemic for owners of in-service low-income housing tax credit properties. 
Todd and I wrote about how property owners will see a decline in short-term rent receipts because of the pandemic's economic fallout. The only real question is how much of a decline. And when we published the blog post last week, the latest data showed that the U.S. had a record 3.3 million jobless claims in a week. And since we published the blog post, that figure doubled. There were 6.6 million U.S. workers who filed for unemployment benefits in the week ending March 28th. Now, as the number of unemployed and underemployed workers grow, that means they'll have less capacity to pay rent. Moreover, the CARES Act put a 120-day moratorium on eviction filings and late fees for many multifamily rental properties, including all low-income housing tax credit properties. Now, a decline in rental receipts, incented in part by a moratorium on evictions, puts property owners in a challenging position. What kind of relief is available to owners is the question everyone is asking. Well, the CARES Act does provide forbearance for multifamily borrowers with a federally-backed multifamily loan, that is, borrowers who experience hardships due to COVID-19. This forbearance rule covers virtually all affordable housing multifamily mortgages, but not all, but many, if not mostly all. Now, the forbearance is for up to 30 days, but owners can apply for two additional 30-day periods, which means owners can pause their mortgage payments up to 90 days. There are rules around that, and the various lenders are in the process of issuing guidance as to how to apply for the forbearance. I want to emphasize, forbearance is not forgiveness. Borrowers will still need to repay their mortgage payments after the forbearance period ends. Now, I do expect the federal government, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, will continue to issue guidance on how the forbearance programs will work. Now, there are other factors that can mitigate a property's cash flow challenges with uh, renters' inability uh, to pay rent and facing a lack of ability to be evicted. Now, these other factors would include tenant-based or property-based Section 8 contracts and business interruption insurance. Now, in the Section 8 payments, property owners will still receive Section 8 payments from the government, regardless of whether or not the tenant can pay their portion of the rent. Now, as I noted earlier, future COVID-19 legislation might include assistance from multifamily owners, more directly payments to multifamily owners to the extent they're unable to collect rent from tenants due to the COVID-19 crisis. Now, beyond in-service properties facing issues, affordable rental housing developers, owners, investors, and lenders are also facing COVID-19-induced challenges, getting properties built, placed in service, and leased. These challenges are causing delays, potentially lengthy delays. We're seeing construction stoppages, difficulties in obtaining materials and supplies, labor shortages, delays in government inspections, approvals and permits, and many more challenges. These challenges cause delays, and these delays are putting some developments at risk of missing critical tax deadlines. And property owners are also facing higher costs due to the delays, which will be combined with reduced tax credit equity due to tax credit adjusters that are kicking in based upon those delays. Well, there is an effort to work with both Congress and the IRS and Treasury to ameliorate these adverse effects through both legislative, regulatory, and sub-regulatory guidance. I encourage you to stay tuned here. I'd also encourage you, if you have suggestions regarding issues that need to be addressed, please contact Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, Peter is working with me and my partner, Dirk Wallace, along with the Local Housing Tax Credit Working Group to help address issues like these. And as always, please contact an overgrowth partner near you for assistance with your developments as you're addressing the challenges that COVID-19 
is presenting. We at Novogradic are here to help. Now, let's move on to some non-COVID-19 matters. Or I guess I should say not directly COVID-19 matters, as COVID-19 does affect so much, either directly or indirectly. In affordable housing news, HUD posted last week income limits for fiscal year 2020. Now, income limits, the HUD income limits, determine individual tenant income eligibility, do you qualify, and the rents for HUD-assisted properties, what are the rents that property owners will receive. These income limits affect public housing, Section 8, Section 202, Section 811 housing, and more. Now, HUD also posted multifamily tax subsidy program limits. These limits are used to determine tenant income eligibility, as well as property level maximum rent for low-income housing tax credit properties. In short, these HUD income limits, they determine the qualifying income levels for tenants, as well as the rents for most affordable housing properties in the country. So let's talk about some top-level numbers from the income limits, and then we'll discuss how these are affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. First, the national median income, it is $78,500. This is an increase of nearly 4% over 2019. Now that 4% is an important number. That's because HUD caps income limit increases at twice that change. So no income limits for 2020 will go up by more than 8%. Now, those figures were predicted by my partner, Thomas Stagg, in a blog post a few months ago. Thomas has written extensively about income limits and will soon, Thomas will soon post a blog about this year's limits. Now, the new income limits were effective April 1st, which was last Wednesday. That said, tax credit credit properties have a 45-day grace period to implement the limits. Income and rent limits are specific to areas, so the national numbers are important only in that they set the limit for increases. Now, it's also important to remember that the hold harmless policy for low income tax credit and bond finance properties continues. Under this hold harmless policy, existing developments where income drops, well, they're able to keep the income and rent limits where they were. Now, you certainly know, or you probably know, that Novogratic has a great free tool to help you get a better understanding of your specific rent and income limits. It's the Novogratz Rent and Income Limit Calculator. That calculator is being updated with 2020 data as we speak. And we expect to release the update soon. And we'll announce that release by a breaking news email. I'll also include a link to the Rent and Income Limit Calculator and a link to register for breaking news emails in today's show notes. And I'll tweet out the link as well. Now, you might be wondering how the COVID-19 pandemic affects these figures. Well, in short, this year's figures were not affected. This year's figures are based on the American Community Survey data from 2017 and then it's trended to 2020 using the 2017 Consumer Price Index along with the Congressional Budget Office's estimate of the 2020 Consumer Price Index. So the 2020 Consumer Price Index estimate was released in January, which means all the information for the 2020 income limits was compiled before the pandemic spread. Now it doesn't mean there are no effects, obviously, as we discussed before, virtually all properties covered by these income limits are under a no eviction standard for the next 120 days. In addition, even though income and rent limits may be increasing, in many areas, any implementation of increased rent items will likely be delayed due to economic factors. So like everything else, affordable housings are greatly affected by COVID-19. Now, we expect the income, if the economic effects, I should say, of the pandemic to have a major impact on future income limits. 
course, the 2021 income limits will use the 2021 consumer price index. So the likely first effects will be felt with the consumer price index for 2021. That's when the American Community Survey data from 2018 is trended using the 2018 and the 2021 CPI. Now, in addition, the biggest effect is likely going to be felt not until 2023. And that's when the 2020 American Community Survey data is used for setting income limits. All this is one way of saying there's a lot going on with income limits. Now, let me restate two key points. First, the national median income increased by 4%, so the income limit cap is an increase of 8%. Second, the number that matters is where a property is located. So make sure you look at the figures for the area of your property. Rent and income limit calculator is a great tool for that. And I also want to share that we are hosting a webinar on Friday, April 24th, on these new income limits. And we'll also, during the webinar, be discussing how COVID-19 will affect future limits. I will tweet out a link to the registration page as soon as it goes live. And I'd also like to encourage you to reach out to the nearest Nervagotic office to help you implement the new rent and income limits for your area. Now, let's turn to some notable Opportunity Zones news from last week. Last week, the IRS published a notice with corrections to the final Opportunity Zones regulations, regulations that were published back in January. Now, while many of the corrections related to typos in minor areas, there were some significant issues addressed. Now, the document itself was 24 pages, and it was effective April 1st, which was last Wednesday. And the changes are applicable as of January 13th, when the final regulations were published. Now, let's take a look at a few of the issues that were addressed in the corrections by the IRS. Now, one important update is that cash held by qualified opportunities on business during the working capital period? Well, now it's clear that it's not considered qualified opportunities on business property for any purpose. This wasn't surprising, but it was a disappointing result. We had asked the Opportunities Zones Working Group that such cash be treated as qualified opportunities on business property. The regulations that were released in January were a bit vague on the issue. There's a bit in conflict. Now it's clear. Cash held as working capital is not qualified opportunities on business property. The corrections also make some changes to the effective date language of the regulations. Uh, it does now appear that the regulations uh, have to be applied on an all-or-nothing basis. But once again, the language is ambiguous, and we do want to get clarifying guidance from the IRS that that is the proper interpretation. The regulations also addressed what we've been referring to as the circular cash flow issue. And in short, the corrections expand the potential grasp of the circular cash flow issue. And that's the issue when you uh, or an owner of property, sell the property to a qualified opportunity fund or a qualified opportunity zone business and would like to invest capital gains into the same qualified opportunity fund. If you'd like to have more information on that, uh, please reach out to John Shreddy uh, in our Dover office. Now, the regulations also corrected some ambiguous language as to how a qualified opportunity fund values an investment in stock or partnership interest. Basically, means in general, an investment in a partnership or a, a corporation, that business can be valued based upon cost as opposed to fair market value. And the corrections also make clear that a qualified opportunity fund can use the cure period once per trader business. Now, there were several other changes. As I said, the clarification document, or I should say the corrections document, was 24 pages. And if you have questions as to how these corrections apply to your fund or business, I'd encourage you to contact a Novogratic office near you. I'll include a list of our Opportunity Zones team in today's show notes. 
Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. And as I'm sure you've heard, Novogratic has rescheduled several of our conferences in compliance with national social distancing mandates. Now, if you're interested in seeing our updated schedule, I'd encourage you to go to www.novoco.com events. I'll tweet out the link as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratic. Thanks for social distancing and thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.